This 10 Talks podcast is a production of the 10 Words Project from WUOT-FM and the University of Tennessee College of Social Work. Welcome to 10 Talks Bedtime Stories. I'm your host, Brittany Crocker. Most anyone who's had young children has heard the phrase, you sleep when they sleep. But a lot of people don't think about that pertaining to caregiving at other stages of life, whether that's for a friend or a family member with mental illness or who is disabled or is elderly or progressing into Alzheimer's. These things come with their own set of struggles. If you tuned in last week, you know here at 10 Talks, we're highlighting some of the most common responses from people in Knoxville's communities to our 10 words question, what keeps you up at night? We had an overwhelming number of anonymous responses from caregivers around East Tennessee caring for others within their family due to aging or mental illness or physical disability, and only half of these respondents were even over 35. So a bit later in the show, we'll be joined by Priscilla Blanton, the director of the Frail Elders Project, and she's going to talk to us about family caregiving roles, including roles for grandchildren during age transition. But right now, we're going to be joined by Ryan Jackson, a young man from East Tennessee who has been a caregiver for both his disabled grandmother and his younger brother, and he's only 24. And Ryan, I understand you were a lot younger when you first started caring for your grandmother, at least. How did you get into this situation? Well, after high school, we we found a need that my grandmother was... um, was lacking in health in certain areas and um she um she'd had two heart attacks and those were those were back to back and um we uh, we knew she wasn't um progressing in the right track and we uh we took her on vacation the uh summer after high school just to try to get her mind off of everything once we we had her for ourselves for a week we just we realized things weren't quite right. We we noticed she would forget things pretty easily. She would stumble a lot. She her gait wasn't just uh her gait wasn't presentable. <laughs> she she probably needed to use a cane, but she just she was so free spirited that she just wanted to do whatever she wanted to. That that was pretty much her her whole life, but. We just we decided to move in with her, just to just to take some of the pressure off of her and to help her with a lot of her daily tasks. At that point in her life, this was about four years ago. She didn't necessarily need around the clock care. She could still get out and do daily tasks like go to the grocery store and go get her hair done and things that she loved to do still. But we kind of could tell that she was starting the beginning of the end of of her life. And what what was the situation with your brother at that time? Well, it he was too young at that point to kind of tell. But when when he was born, he was born with he was born with a form of cerebral palsy. But later on in life, we figured out that he had he had ADD, ADHD, and a few um, a few other mental disorders. 
possibly a form of Asperger's on the on the autism spectrum, but at that time it wasn't as severe. At that time, we just you know we had a way to control it. He he didn't outburst as much. He was more of a normal kid, but maybe like a a seven year old trapped in a twelve year old's body. And what was your role at that point in in caretaking for both of them? Well, like what would an average day look like for you? A week for us would be would be getting grandmother to doctor's appointments and it would be taking care of her medicines because oftentimes she would not remember what her medicines were for the day and try to take too much of a certain medicine and she would go to sleep at night and wake up during the night and think she hadn't taken her medicines and try to take them again and sometimes we wouldn't catch her and she would take them again and at that point we would have to watch her a little more closely that that took about a couple of months in on staying with her not not that she had been doing that for a couple of months, but she she definitely, like I said before, was a free spirit. But she <laughs> she acquired a lot of uh, attention. Definitely, she um, she definitely needed things her way, and her way at that time, because if things didn't get done at that moment then she was likely to do them herself and that risked a fall or an injury or possibly worse at at the point with my little brother he he would come and visit sporadically and so he didn't live with you guys at your grandmother's house n- not n- not very much no his his point in the story would come a little later Okay, so where where did he come in? He he came in shortly after my grandmother's passing. And so now you reside with your with your brother. Yes. Okay, live with your brother. I guess reside is a bit of a <laughs> pretentious <laughs> word. Job application. Where do you reside? <laughs> um, so now, what what are your roles kind of with your brother? <clears throat> well, we. <laughs> It's it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to get into, uh, but he he he's sixteen now, and it, it's kind of a it's trying to kind of a tricky age for him, because even though he he progresses in age, he doesn't progress very much in brain age. He's still at that point where he's kind of a preteen and he uh he he still does the things that preteens do and everybody else looks at him as if he's 16 but he's not really 16 he he desperately tries so hard to fit in everywhere he goes and he he doesn't really <laughs> So we we try to we try to accommodate him at home as best as we can and 
we 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 try to play games with them and we try to just we try to like we we've gotten him certain pets in the house and like i we've got him a uh pet dragon that he uh that he loves he's he's had this thing for almost a year now and he has a he's a black lab that he's had for almost two years now and he, he loves that thing to death um he's he's getting over uh, the death of one of his um <clears throat> another one of his pets that just happened recently he we got him a sugar glider and he um <laughs> he took to that thing pretty quickly and that that only lasted about three weeks yeah rodents are usually a little more fragile Mm-hmm. Sugar gliders and hamsters and things. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a more PC term than rodents. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> small mammals. Right. So with your brother, these pets have been kind of like a comfort to him. Right. And he's still is he currently in school? Yes. Yes. So how much help have you had from your family throughout this whole process? My uh, my dad, he. He's been he's been pretty he's been pretty active in this. With your brother? Mm-hmm. And Just, your mom was your mom able to be involved at all in some of this process or some. Some. It's just I think I think my mom's just a little a little scared to get in there because sometimes when my brother goes off it just gets a little a little heated and my mom just doesn't want to step into that into that danger. <laughs> um, I think you'd mentioned something about a car wreck with your mom, though, that mm-hmm. it made her unable to participate in taking care of... Um, was it your grandmother or your brother? Um, my grandmother. Mm-hmm. What happened there? Oh, with the car wreck? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this happened... This happened 16 years ago. We, um, we took just a... a I think it was like a Sunday afternoon drive up to the mountains, and we had, at the time, an older car that didn't have any airbags whatsoever, and the car in front of us failed to yield, failed to use their turn signal at a uh, at a turn somewhere up in the mountains, and um, it was a rainy day, and our car just locked up its brakes and we slammed right into the back of them and my mom slammed her head into the uh steering wheel and the dashboard of the car really violently and it wasn't for a couple of months afterwards that she started feeling effects of the crash and she had to she had to retire from work and she had to have a couple of neck surgeries they thought she was going to be paralyzed from the neck down uh, it was really, <laughs> it was really tumultuous for a while for her. We uh, lost my grandfather shortly after one of the surgeries, and um, we were <laughs> we were stuck with my grandmother after that. She was she was doing pretty fine in in her health, but she was she was in the grieving process. So it was. Um, it was it was kind of one thing after another after that. Around this time, it, uh, you had just graduated high school when when you moved in to the house that your grandmother was in. 
So did did you have any other plans that you had to put on hold or any other responsibilities that then fell by the wayside as you took on more responsibility at home? I I wanted to jump right into college right after high school, but we when we noticed something wasn't kind of right with grandma, we just stepped in there and I decided and thought to myself, well, one semester off wouldn't be too bad and then <laughs> as time went on, I I mean, I I jumped in the semester afterward to college, but as things progressed, I during my first semester in the college, I wasn't I wasn't as focused as I as I should have been. I mean, I I was able to to get good enough grades the first semester. The second semester in, when everything just collapsed on top of me, I uh, there there was nothing there in in school. I just I was I was basically there just uh, kind of as a distraction from home. I kind of got a call one day, just out of the blue, at school that. My grandma had thrown her back out, and I was like, well, <laughs> this, this day couldn't go any better. <laughs> so I just came home and talked to the uh, admissions department at school, and I thought, well, there's there's got to be some way I can get out of this. I, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think she's uh, going to be uh, doing anything for quite a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. So at that point, you ended up dropping out to go to go back home. Mm-hmm. She, her lawnmower, her riding lawnmower, broke down at the bottom of a hill in our yard, and she pushed it all the way up the hill to the front yard wow. while the blades were engaged on the ground, and she threw her back out doing so. And I thought to myself, I thought, that is a really weird way to throw your back out. <laughs> it it wasn't two days later that she uh, she fell and broke her hip. I'm like, this woman is very determined to to do anything. And I'd known that all my life because everything she did, she she recovered from, and she just did, did no matter what. Did that independent spirit that you saw in her then, was that one of the things that played into your family deciding to care for her yourselves, or was there another reason that you didn't seek outside um nursing home assistance or a private nurse or anything like that i guess that was one of the reasons because the um the two heart attacks that she had i when when she was at the hospital on on the pain medicines that she was on she she gave all, all the nurses quite the uh quite the scare and quite the uh quite the entertainment that that they certainly probably didn't need by getting out of bed at night and trying to look for things that obviously weren't there because she thought she was still at home but she uh she would she would do things in hospitals that that she couldn't do that she wasn't supposed to do and when when she broke her hip I knew I knew that this was the beginning of the end for her when my mom when my mom saw that she had the heart attack she knew it was the beginning of the end but when she broke her hip 
I, I for some reason knew that this was something that that she would you know it would take her some time to to recover from in a way but she wasn't going to completely recover from it this was this was going to be me and my mom taking care of her until until she passed away and it was it felt like my dream of school halted for a while and for for a while i felt really selfish for for thinking that i i thought to myself i was like well this is over and then i just had to get over it because at that point i didn't know when she was when she was gonna go did you find that through this <clears throat> you developed a, a stronger bond with your little brother with your grandmother through these experiences mm-hmm when when they came by while grandmother started to deteriorate they uh <laughs> they would stay with me and they would my little brother would just sit there and even though inside he is younger than than he looks he he still understands and still understood what was going on and I found that really amazing because I just, I could just sit there and hold a conversation with him. And I just, I had no problem with talking with him about anything. He just, he just sat there and talked everything over with me. And even when she got placed in hospice at home, and this was almost two years ago, she still had a spirit of her that she was like, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go take the car. I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to go to the grocery store. I'm going to go get my hair done, this, that, Very and the other. Or oh, she was independent until maybe less than a week before she passed away. And I was, <laughs> I was, I was shocked. I, I, I didn't have any words for for anything. Do you think that being in that role with your grandmother increased your bond with her as well, more than it would have if you had, I don't know, sought outside care or anything else? Mm-hmm. I did. Every, every doctor, every nurse that we had been in contact with uh, had, um, had an experience with at any hospital later in my experience with uh, caregiving with her had told me that there was no hope that just to just to give up just just to let her die at the hospital is what they basically told me and it was it was very discouraging and I just <laughs> me and my mom just sat in a corner just talking this over and we after all this time just taking care of her just had decided not to not to let this happen to her and and we took her home because the doctors had told us that day and I won't forget it because it was it was November 1st of 2013 it was the day after Halloween because they took her out of uh out of critical care and they told us it was going to be a big risk because they said that she was going to die the day after they they took her out of there 
they said, might as well just leave her in the hospital because that's where she's going to pass away. And I said, no, we're going to take her home. And however long she's, she lives there, she's going to live there because she's not going to give up. I know, I know who she is. I know how she acts. I know her spirit. This is, this is how it's going to be. And she lived a good solid month and a half, almost two months after that at home. So when has it been most difficult for you? For a while, as probably most people do with hospice care, they, they, get, they get better for a while. And then they reach a point where it just, they, they hit a wall and then they just deteriorate rapidly. It, but at least that's what happened with her. It, that, that almost two months seemed like forever because we just, we just shut out the whole world. We just, <laughs> we just, we gathered old photos. We had family come over. We had, we had pictures we never thought we could ever find come out of the woodwork and we shared so much and for about two weeks we thought she was gone but Christmas morning she came back around for some reason unbeknownst to me I have no clue to this day why she uh, she perked up the way she did we were able to give her Christmas presents she shared Christmas with us she (laughs) She just, she was happy. She was, we were able to understand her. She was able to understand us. She just enjoyed everything. And then four days, for four days after that, she just faded. Like, like sand in an hourglass. We just watched her. And, (laughs) I mean, we... We think she was able to understand us, but, and we, but we didn't understand her. She just, we, we just had to let her go. Oh gosh, sorry. (laughs) We'll be right back after a short break. My mom and my grandmother were in the hospital at the same time. And when, when my grandmother got put in hospice care, my mom was in the hospital at the same time. And when my grandmother died, my mom was in the hospital. And me, my dad, my mom, no, my dad and me, sorry. It's a hard, a hard story to tell. <laughs> my dad had to go to the hospital to tell my mom that her mom died. It sounds like it was 
just that that aspect of just losing her at that point in time is probably one of the one of the moments that probably I mean I don't I can't even put it into words because I can't even imagine what that feels like having cared that long for someone and then seeing them go. Um, that that first night we brought her home. Honestly, we thought we were gonna lose her. <laughs> And th there was actually a very funny moment in that night where we, we sat there with her and we just, we bawled with her because we just, we sat there laying on her bed beside her and we just thought that this was it. And for about 45 minutes, we... We we kept telling her we loved her and we we didn't want to see her go and she perked up, looked up and said, "Well, I don't think I'll be going tonight." <laughs> and it was just the most random thing. I didn't I didn't think <laughs> anything of it. But she just said that and she got up out of bed, just kind of just like like. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how you would put it. She just kind of tiptoed to the kitchen. Me and my mom just looked at each other, and we just shook our heads. And I'm like, <sighs> there was so much emotion and so much energy that we we had zapped from us for two months on end, and we for two months we hardly slept at all, and. We, I didn't, I didn't hardly work for two months. It was, I, I ended up calling work and just telling them, I need this time. I, I, I told, I literally told my boss, I said, I don't care if you fire me. I don't care if you give my position to somebody else. I really don't at this point. Where were you working? I, I was working at a grocery store. Okay. Um, when, so... That that moment that she stood up, it sounds like that was probably one of those rewarding things. Were there any other times that you found it the most rewarding? Um, <laughs> there there would be points where there there would be times where we would think she was fading, and she would sing little songs to us like little church hymnals that my mom thought she wouldn't remember after so long and our little bedtime songs that she'd sing to me that I didn't remember after so long and it, it renewed a little bit of hope that things were going to be all right at least for the day or for the week and <laughs> just I mean, we we still knew that things were were still pretty bad through like the discussions we had with other family members out outside of the room, not talking with her because talking talking with her when she was still pretty uh pretty with the world about death worried her. I I remember a discussion in the beginning of her of her hospice stay when we had a uh when we had a chaplain there that uh 
that got her pretty worried because uh, she was she was bound and determined that she was not dying, and she did not want a chaplain there telling her that this was the beginning of the end, mm-hmm. and she did not want anybody there talking to her about anything pertaining to <laughs> pertaining to well are you <laughs> are you packed up are you ready are you <laughs> are you getting your final affairs in order packed up <laughs> <laughs> as though it's just a vacation <laughs> right <laughs> um so what what's your situation now are you looking at going back to school or are you still at home working with your brother how does How's your situation now kind of look? I am I am going back to school in the fall. Really? That is um that that is a set that is a set thing. Um um <laughs> the uh, the situation will be uh kind of cramped. Um will you be working your schedule around anything that pertains to your home life? Yeah, I I will be. Um it <laughs> It'll it'll be work, school. Um, after after grandma passed and with everything going on with brother, I just keep thinking of the little things and just I keep telling myself to take everything one day at a time and just not worry about not worry about tomorrow or worry about what's happened in the past now because that's that's a done deal that's no longer something to be worried about because (laughs) i just have to i've just got it in my head i have to worry about what's going on right now (laughs) i think that's good advice for anyone um is there anything else that you'd tell someone coming into the situation that you've been through as a as a, a young caregiver uh it's it's something that i learned um one thing i learned early in uh in all of this and it, it goes back to um a moment i had with my grandma and i, I learned to have faith in in uh in all of this and I I really didn't think I was going to have as much time with her as I did because after after the hip break I I didn't know what to expect and I uh I found myself with her at the hospital one day and well one night actually and we had a, a nursing home locally that um had overdosed her um and i found myself in the critical care unit one night and they had overdosed her really badly and they told her there's really nothing we can do with her so uh just come in here with her and uh we'll try to revive her and if we can't do that just um just plan on a funeral here soon and we just we were overwhelmed with a lot, and they uh, they told us that since she had been in the hospital before, not to expect too much. So I just I told myself to have 
a little bit more faith than I had been giving myself credit for. So once I did that, she uh, she came out of it somehow. And I just my advice is to to have a little to have a little faith, to um, to not take time for granted with the people that you love, because uh, you may find that uh, it may disappear on you after <laughs> after a while. But um, just love love your family, keep them close, and uh, have faith. That's very poignant. Thank you. We're going to take another break here in a second, but after the break, we'll be joined by Priscilla Blanton, the director of the Frail Elders Project, and she's going to talk to us about family caregiving during age transitions. Welcome back to Bedtime Stories. We're here with Priscilla Blanton, the director of the Frail Elders Project. Priscilla, can you tell me a little bit about what the Frail Elders Project is? Yes, I'm a faculty member in the Department of Child and Family Studies, and it's a research project that I started to try and uh, learn more about the process of caregiving as a family process because it does involve multiple people within families, and much of the earlier research had focused only on the primary caregiver but hadn't really looked at the process of how families handle that. And, of course, there's going to be a greater and greater need for family caregiving because we have people who are living longer than ever before, which means that the care they need is going to last for a longer period of time and going to involve perhaps more complex types of care because of uh, medical changes that allow us to extend life for much longer periods of time than was true in the past. So, you know, it was an issue that I was interested in professionally, but personally, too, because I had helped and I was a remote part of a family caregiving process for the most part for my dad after my mom died. And then he had a stroke and uh, I was involved personally at that point. And so it was both a personal and a professional interest. So this caregiving process as a family as opposed to having one person, do you think that's been occurring anyways or do you think that that's two separate things? No, I think it was occurring. We just had tended to focus on uh, the primary caregiver in doing research, and not as much attention had been given to how the process played out in the context of the family and what the in, uh, involvement of auxiliary caregivers in the family uh, entailed. So I think it's always occurred as a family process. We just didn't study it as such. Uh, until much more recently. And you'd mentioned um, just kind of studying it as a family, and I remember reading um, on on your bio and some of your stuff talking about how you believe that individuals are better understood within the context of their families. Um, Can you speak a little more on that and how it pertains to these transitional periods of life? Yeah, well, transitions don't happen to individuals. They happen to families. 
And, uh, you know, as you make, uh, as you have a child who becomes an adolescent, you also have parents who become middle-aged. And so it, it's very much not only transitions at an individual level that coincide, but also changes occur in the family that the family has to adapt to and has to address as changes occur for individuals. So it is very much a family process. And I don't think we can understand from a more holistic sense what transitions are like unless we look at the family, not just the individual. So what what benefits do you think being cared for by one's family provides, like an aging or ill or disabled person during this time as opposed to going to... Um, to an assisted care facility or anywhere else? Well, let me just say that that it isn't really an either-or kind of thing, that we know that many families stay very actively involved in the process of caregiving to elders when they make the transition to uh, some type of either skilled nursing care or residential uh, facility. So the idea that that families aren't involved is, I think, one of the myths that's been perpetuated in our culture because families stay, for the most part, very involved. Now, there are, that isn't universally true, but that is more the rule than the exception, that even though they're not providing day-to-day caregiving, they're still involved in the caregiving process. Uh, So, you know, I think most seniors, understandably, would prefer uh, to be able to be at home. And some of the families that were in my project that I interviewed caregivers uh, from, I remember one caregiver who said that her mother-in-law had been diagnosed with early-stage Alzheimer's. And she kept saying to her daughter-in-law, you got to promise me that you won't ever put me in a home. And she said, I responded by saying, I want you to know, as long as I can, I will take care of you. Uh, Which, you know, I think uh, that's a pretty good way of thinking about it, that, yes, it's a preference, but many times within families, there comes a time when they really cannot be cared for at home any longer. And you mentioned getting uh, people to help care, and it's, it's a very expensive proposition because home care is not covered by uh, Medicare and it's a very expensive proposition particularly if you need 24-7 care or skilled nursing care it it can be very expensive to try to provide care in in the home outside really probably most families ability to uh, sustain that for any period of time so yeah, I think most people want to be cared for at home, but they're actually, the transition is to some sort of more institutionalized kind of care is usually not an easy transition. But often, once they adjust, they actually like uh, assisted living. Uh, they like being more social. They like having more people around. Their nutrition may improve. So, you know, I think families need to keep in mind that 
there is this transitional period, but even though they may be initially unhappy about the change, it doesn't mean that they won't be able to adjust. One of the situations that you have based a lot of your research upon has been grandchildren caring for grandparents as opposed right. to the parents having the, the dominant role in that. Um, can you tell me a little yeah. bit more about that? More often, uh, adult grandchildren are involved as auxiliary caregivers, not primary caregivers. In almost every caregiving situation, there's one person who is the primary caregiver that has more of the day-to-day responsibility and more of a say often in decision-making processes about care uh, for a frail elder. Uh, And so adult grandchildren are often involved in the caregiving, but they're less likely to be involved in the physical caregiving and more likely to be involved in the, what I call more kind of the social-emotional aspects of caregiving. And a lot of what they do is provide support to the uh, aging person and support to their parents who tend to most often be the primary caregivers. Um, I guess in my role in that situation, there, there, there was, uh, there was a little bit of physical aspect in there, but there were, there were a lot of things that they sent us home with just like physical, um, physical fitness stuff. They sent us home with from the hospital every time we went home from the hospital, but, um, we, we did try to, you know, keep her as active as we would like have like to have done with her in in her later stages but you know there there's only so much we could have we tried to have done with her there's there's so much her body tried to um tried to take at um at certain points in her life in the uh, in the last month of her life she just she just she didn't want to do too much and I, 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 I want to say that's understandable, but I just, I, I didn't really want to put too much on her. But at the same time, I didn't want to just let her lay in bed and just, you know. I mean, um, I did consult with a lot of other people who did deal with people in hospice, and it was, it was a help having to uh to consult with my great uncle because he did he had to uh just deal with his wife being in hospice because he um he had to uh just put his wife through there because she had alzheimer's and that goes back to what you had uh just said earlier priscilla because um they um they had exhausted their um their resources pretty pretty early <laughs> in uh in helping her through their through her alzheimer's because yeah. they uh, they they tried to do a lot of things just in home they they used a lot of nursing skilled nursing with her she had battled the disease for i think i think it was 7 years and they could only do so much for her but it was it was it was extremely hard road for her. My great uncle was very helpful in in helping with uh, 
with the hospice situation. Well, and I think what you're sharing with us now, Ryan, is an illustration how it's not just the nuclear family, it's also the extended family that is often very much either involved or not involved uh, in the process of caregiving. And I think also when you talk about uh, Alzheimer's-related dementia, that's one of the real struggles facing caregiving families today because uh, Alzheimer's is referred to as the long goodbye because the mind deteriorates much more rapidly than the body and cognitive impairment usually goes along with physical frailty but can progress much more rapidly uh, than the physical uh, frailty. And, And so you have people who really need constant care uh, and like you said, you can exhaust your resources pretty quickly trying to provide that in home. And um, I think that many times for the safety of the elder, uh, institutionalized care becomes uh, the best option because there's a book for caregivers uh involved with those who have dementia called the 36-hour day. And, you know, I think that it's uh, a very uh, demanding situation in some respects, but also, as you said, a very rewarding process that, yes, there are things that are stressful, there are demands you have to deal with, but at the same time, there's a real sense of gratification for, for providing care to someone that you have a strong attachment relationship with, as obviously you did with your grandmother. So in your research, did you see any um, polarization in maybe income classes when it comes to, ha- comes to care plans for elderly people? I didn't really see a great deal of difference across socioeconomic levels. Uh, The big dividing point was if family relationships had been conflicted, strained, negative, then caregiving was a far more burdensome process. If relationships, for the most part, because we all are part of families and we know there are no perfect families out there, but... For the most part, if relationships had been somewhat more uh, harmonious, positive, uh, emotionally uh, gratifying, then even though there were demands associated with the caregiving, they didn't seem as burdensome because they were counterbalanced by the rewards. So do you mean families with strained relationships between the family members and the caregiver, or does that mean the family members and other family members, or just any of All of the above. All of the above. Yeah, I mean, I had one family where it was, they were providing care to uh, the wife's mother, and she and her mother had always had a conflicted, rather negative relationship. She had a sister. The relationships among the three of them had been strained and negative and conflicted, and it was it was a very burdensome uh, negative experience uh, for uh, that family to deal with caregiving. 
So can you talk a little bit more, I guess we're kind of rewinding at this point, but a little bit more about your research and um, the process of interviewing these families and sure. what that end was. Okay. I identified 20 families that were providing care to a frail elder that was either cognitively or physically frail or both. And in most families, it was both. I did have some families where they had a physically frail elder that wasn't cognitively frail, but I didn't have any families where there was a cognitively frail elder who wasn't also physically frail because uh, dementia, Alzheimer's-related dementia, is much, much more likely with advancing age. So you're, you were looking at a usually an older group uh, of uh care recipients when you were talking about cognitive frailty. But I identified 20 families, and I interviewed three to four people from each of those families about their experience with the caregiving process. I interviewed the primary caregiver in every family, and then I would ask them to identify the other people they thought I should talk to. Mm -hmm. And then I would interview sometimes it was a spouse most often. Uh, it was a, 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 a grandchild or a sibling. Uh, I had one family where there were two uh, young women in their 30s helping give care to a woman in her 80s because she was the cousin of their grandmother who was in her 70s. And... She had no nobody else. She had never married. She had no children. Her parents had died. She was an only child. And she and her older cousin had been close all of their adult lives. But it was a situation where their grandmother was no longer really able to provide the care that her older cousin was needed. And she took a fall and went to the hospital and things often with hospitalizations for older people with uh, cognitive impairment, it, it can really cause a downward spiral. Uh, so uh, I, I thought about one of the young women said, well, all she had was cousins. So in that case, I interviewed cousins. I interviewed the grandmother and her two granddaughters who were providing the care. But Usually it was a spouse uh, or a young adult grandchild. Those were the most common situations. Have you personally been in a situation like this? Yes. I helped provide care to my dad after he had a stroke. And then 10 years ago, my husband was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, I helped care for him uh, the last year of his life uh, with the cancer uh, effects uh, on his physical well-being. Uh, neither one of my dad nor my husband, of course, were dealing with physical frailty. My dad was 81 when he died, but uh, remained cognitively uh, very in touch and very lucid. So what were some of the differences dealing with your situation, which had more physical frailty than cognitive frailty? compared to some of the situations of just cognitive frailty you'd studied? What happens often when you're dealing with cognitive frailty, cognitive impairment, 
is that you really lose not you lose the relationship that you had with that person as you knew it. So in the literature, they talk about the loss of intimacy. And I don't know that it's a loss, but it's certainly a tremendous change. Uh, and, and so my, I was dealing much more with losing the person, not the relationship. And you really deal with both when you're dealing with cognitive impairment. Um, so, you know, even though mine was still very emotionally difficult, I did feel like I was able to maintain my relationship uh, pretty much as it had been uh, with both of uh, the people I helped care for. Uh, and that often what happens with... Uh, dementia, is that those who are able to deal with it the best are those who are able to focus on what's left rather than what's been lost. Uh, I had young, one young woman in my study whose grandmother had had Alzheimer's for 10 years and was basically nonverbal at the time that I interviewed her granddaughter, and her granddaughter was in her 20s. But she was still responsive. She just wasn't verbally responsive. And her granddaughter would go visit her in the nursing home, and she would say, you know, she gets so happy and so excited when she sees me walk in. And she said, you know, and I can just sit there and talk to her, and she'll pat my hand and pat my knee. And she said, you know, she's a wonderful listener, and I could just tell her, everything that's going on, and she said, we'll go out and go for a walk, and I'll sing songs to her that she sang to me when I was a little girl, and she'll laugh. And so she was able to focus on what was left rather than being so tremendously sad about what had been lost. And those are the families that were able to deal with the cognitive impairment the best. They could really let go of that sense of it's not the same relationship and sort of accept it for what it had to offer in the present moment, as Brian said earlier. That even for me goes back to um, the uh, relationship that uh, my uh, great aunt and great uncle had before my great aunt developed her Alzheimer's. They were together for uh they were married for 62 years before wow. um before she passed away and um it, it had gotten so bad that um she didn't even recognize who he was and um they uh they were both in their 80s you can probably see it's pretty difficult for an 80 year old man to chase around an 80 year old woman who who has Alzheimer's in the house and um, who has no clue of who's who or what is what's what or what exactly is going on in the world, but um, <clears throat> just um, <laughs> seeing seeing that from from the outside um, with all the uh, the skilled nursing that. Um, my uh, that part of the family had going on, and uh, seeing those uh, those memories that uh, they were sharing just uh, made me uh, you know, reminisce a little bit. 
on that memory. Yeah, I think it's such a beautiful picture of that full circle with a family of the songs that she used to sing, that she sang them back to her. Yeah, that same granddaughter said to me when I interviewed her, she said, uh, when I look into a mirror, I see my mother's eyes and my grandmother's eyes. Because all three of them had uh, beautiful blue eyes. And so there was a real strong bond of identification there. That's beautiful. Um, what advice would you have for family caregivers currently in this situation? I think, first of all, you need to work out some way uh, so that there is some opportunity for respite. Uh, nobody can be a caregiver 24-7 without starting to adversely affect their own physical health and mental health. And so there need, it does need to be um, a team approach. And you need other people in the family. You may need people from outside. But you need to be realistic about um, how much you can really take on in terms of caregiving uh, for someone. And, and understand it's kind of like on the airplane when they tell you, put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on your child because if you can't if you're unconscious you're not going to be able to help your child you know i think caregivers have to be focused on self-care and not just care to the to the person that is becoming increasingly more dependent or they're not going to be able to have the the resources they need to handle the caregiving process and I think a lot of times caregivers have trouble asking for help, uh, particularly maybe asking other family members for help. And one suggestion I would have is you volunteer. Don't wait to be asked. Mm -hmm. You say, gee, I realize, what can I do? How can I help? Uh, if you live at a distance, if you can't be there, you can pay somebody to be there. So there, there are always ways that you can be helpful. And one way that uh, young adult grandchildren were very helpful was they listened and empathized and supported and appreciated uh, the person that was uh, dealing with uh, the primary caregiving on a day-to-day -day basis. Absolutely. Um, have you had conversations with your own family about what you would either like them to do or what it, they might encounter um, mm -hmm. when you enter an age transition one day? Yeah, well, I have long-term care insurance. <laughs> yeah, my family does. <laughs> and I think that's an important kind of thing because I think that, that when you prepare for that eventuality, uh, then there are more options open to people. Uh, my, I think I have, my children are in their their late twenties, and I think they know that uh, I don't really want them to have the responsibility of my care on a day to day basis. I know I'll always be very involved with them, but uh, we haven't talked about it a lot because I've been in pretty good health uh, thus far. But. Uh, I guess I think they know that I don't want uh, their lives to be unduly interrupted by 
their desire to help care for me. And that is one of the complexities of it, that as difficult as it could be in your situation or even looking at my parents' situation when they were caregiving for my grandparents, um, just that even as difficult as it is, like for most people that juice is worth the squeeze, so to speak, like they, they'll give up whatever it could take because they want to be there. They don't just feel obligated. Right. They do it out of... Uh strong affectional bond rather than a sense of obligation. And when people are put in the situation of having to do it more out of a sense of obligation, it's much more stressful. Strong affectional Because you bond. don't have the rewards. <laughs> Is the strong affectional bond, do you mean just love? or do you Yeah. Like you know, I'm a social scientist, so I have fancy names for everything. <laughs> I strongly affectionately bond with you. Right. How romantic. <laughs> um is there anything you like to add? Well, I mean, I think um, you and Ryan both have talked about the fact that it, I think caregiving becomes a situation where families are able to see the best of who they are as well as the worst of who they are, uh, you know, because it can be demanding and exhausting and you're not always as patient as you would like to be. And it's it's different to some extent than parenting because when you're caregiving as a parent, you're seeing someone move increasingly toward greater and greater independence. You don't see that in the kind of caregiving situations we've talked about today. So it isn't a, uh, it's a very different kind of situation. But I would say, you know, try and focus on the present moment, I think Ryan gave real good advice when he said, you know, don't worry about tomorrow. Just focus on what is it I need to do today uh, and try and keep your focus there and, and focus on what's left. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed your bedtime story. Be sure to tune in to 10 Talks next week for Sleeping Hot. Hot flashes, hot bodies, and hot nights, where we'll seek to highlight some of the ways that your body temperature is keeping you and our other respondents around East Tennessee up at night. And remember, you can always find out more information about the 10 Words Project on our website, wuot.org. Or you can find us on Twitter at 10 Words, 10 with two N's, where we'll publish some of your anonymous responses to our What Keeps You Up at Night question of the quarter every day. We also keep a running archive on Instagram. Again, that's at 10 words. And there you can see photos of all of our responses, the funny, the bizarre, the serious, the thought provoking, all of them. Thanks a bunch to Ryan Jackson and Priscilla Blanton for coming on the show. And a big thanks to everyone on the 10 words team and the good folks over at the University of Tennessee College of Social Work. The music for Bedtime Stories is by Todd Steed and the Sons of Fear. That's P-H-E-R-E, kind of like Sunsphere, get it? If you like it, you can hear a whole lot more of it on Bandcamp. Sleep tight, Knoxville. <laughs>